don't take it personally. Uh, that's lots of times when, when you're talking about dealing with rejection, that's kind of the advice that, that you get. Don't take it personally. You know, they, weren't, they weren't rejecting you. They were just rejecting you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how do you explain that. Like, like when you don't get the job, you don't get into the school, you don't have the relationship that you desire. There. Don't take it personally. But how do you not take it personally? And you know, when, when Jesus is rejected, he takes it personally. When Jesus is rejected, he, he takes it as an offense to himself. He doesn't, he doesn't say, he doesn't say anything like, maybe they just didn't like the way the message was presented. Maybe they didn't care for, uh, for the, the person who brought it. He doesn't take any of those things. When you reject the message of Jesus Christ, Jesus takes it personally. He takes it as a rejection of himself. So what I hope you'll realize today is that in following Jesus Christ means there's going to be rejection, personal rejection of Jesus himself. But in the midst of rejection, there's also reason for rejoicing, for rejoicing. Uh, that's the only two points this morning is the rejection of Jesus and the rejoicing of Jesus. We're going to be in Luke 9 and 10. Luke 9 and 10. Trying to navigate your way around. Bibles have tables of contents, just like other books, so you can go and find the, the page number at the beginning. The large number is the chapter. The smaller numbers are the verses. Follow along. They really help you and follow along with the sermon. We're going to start with the rejection of Jesus in Luke 9. Let's read verses 51 through 56. Luke 9, verses 51 through 56. Luke 9, 51 through 56. That's what it says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered, uh, entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Uh, verse 51, where it talks about Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. This is a turning point in the book of Luke. This is the, a long central section of Luke where he is, he is traveling on his way from Galilee, which is in the north, to Jerusalem in the south where he is going to go to the cross and he is going to die for sinners. You can already see that in chapter 9, earlier in chapter 9, how that's already hinted at. Uh, so you can read verses uh, 21 and 22 where Jesus reveals him to his disciples that he is the Christ. And then he says, and he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and will be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. And later on, he is, he is there on the mountaintop, and he is actually speaking to Moses and Elijah, and he is transformed, transfigured in front of them, and he is speaking to Moses and Elijah about his departure, literally his exodus. His, he is going he is going to go up in Jerusalem. He is going to be raised up in Jerusalem. He is going to be raised up on a cross and crucified. Then he is going to be raised from the dead. And then he is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father to rule over all things. That is what he is getting ready for. But this long central section, this long travel section of Luke, you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus Christ? 
You're following him to the cross. So in verses 23 through 26, Jesus says to his disciples, And if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What Jesus Christ is going to do is he is going to Jerusalem to die for sinners. He is going to die in the place of sinners who would turn from their sins and put their trust in him. And if you haven't done that, I hope that you will, I hope that you will do that today. I hope you will put your trust in Jesus Christ. But you also need to know what that means. It means... That to be his follower means that you follow him in his death. That you are following him in his suffering. This is the pattern of Jesus' life. And, and what it means to follow Jesus, as you can see this here, it, it, is this, it is this setting your face. Jesus has set his face to the cross. He has set his face to Jerusalem. There is nothing going to deter him from it. He is determined. He is resolved. He is resolute. He cannot be turned out of the way. And discipleship of Jesus Christ requires the same thing. It requires a determination to follow Jesus wherever he goes. So then you start out. You see it start out there in verse 51. And the most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem is through this area called Samaria. And people who lived in Samaria called Samaritans. Well, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. The Jews had, had remained faithful. They had stayed pure and they had remained faithful to what God had commanded them. They had learned something coming out of exile where they had been removed from the land and they had been brought back to the land and they realized that uh, they, they, they thought to themselves and realized we, if we're going to stay in the land, if we're going to please God, we need to be pure. But the Samaritans did not remain pure. They had intermarried with, with pagan nations that surrounded them. And so all the Jews saw these Samaritans as, as half-breed, defiled traitors. And so there was, this, there was this great hatred between Jews and Samaritans. So Jesus is headed through Samaritans. He, he sends people ahead of him, get things ready, find a place for us to stay. Find a place for us to sleep in the village. But when they see that Jesus is a Jew who is headed toward Jerusalem, they, they reject him. They don't allow him to come. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to realize that there's going to be rejection on the way. There's going to be rejection. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you will be treated like Jesus Christ was treated. This is the order of things. This is the order of things for Jesus. His life was a life of humility, of self-sacrifice, of self-abasement, of rejection, of suffering, of persecution, and then glory. And that's something that James and John don't seem to understand. They see Jesus being rejected and they want to call down fireballs from heaven to consume everybody. And that's not unprecedented. Same thing happened to Elijah. Some people came against Elijah in 2 Kings 1. Fireballs from heaven. Consumed them. One army came. Bam. Another army came. Bam. Finally, they said, please don't kill us. And he let them speak. You know, that, that was it. But what Jesus, when, when James and John say this, they, they are saying to Jesus, hey, do you want us to, you want us to pray to God? These people will be destroyed. And Jesus rebukes them. You see, what Jesus does is, is what's happening with Jesus. And what Luke uh, portrays so clearly is that Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God. 
But there is, there, is a, there is a way that the kingdom of God is coming that is already here. That is the, the, the rescuing of his people. Already those who are trusting in Jesus Christ are being saved. They're being rescued. And yet there is a time of, of, of judgment that is coming later. But now is not that time. Judgment is going to come, but now is not the time for judgment. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of preaching good news to the poor. Now is not the time. The the time now, what Jesus says from the cross, is forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus teaches his disciples, pray for those who persecute you. When he calls you to pray for them, he's he's not saying pray for fireballs from heaven to fall on them. He's saying pray for their salvation because now is the time of salvation. Now is, the, now is the day for them to turn from their sins and to trust in the message that Jesus Christ has brought. So you can see there, pick up there, it doesn't get lighter from there. Uh, there is, there's rejection and there is, there is more difficulty. There is, a, there, is a, there is a heaviness about following Jesus Christ. See there in verses 57 through 62, read it with me. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. First guy comes to Jesus and says, I'll go with you wherever you go. Jesus says, you don't understand. I just tried to get a place to stay in this village in Samaria. And they wouldn't let me have a place to stay. Every other creature, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Every other creature in creation has a place to live. But the one through whom creation came, he has no place to stay. You want to know what it was like for Jesus Christ to become a human being? It was to be humiliated. Even what we take for granted, a place to live, Jesus had none. You want to follow Jesus? We cannot expect better than what our Savior received. There is is humility before glory. There is following after Jesus downward before there is upward. And then there's, then there's another man that Jesus says, follow me. And the guy says, first let me go and bury my father. Now there was no uh, more important relationship in first century Palestine than the, than the relationship between parents and children, especially a father and a son. It was, it was a very defiling thing, an impure thing. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a feared thing by fathers, by older men, that they would die and not be buried, that there would be no one there to take care of their burial service. And so this man is saying, like, like this, is my, this is my connection. This is, this is what is important to me. Like, like, this is the most important thing in our society to let me go and bury my father. Let me go and do that first. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Now, does that sound harsh? Does that sound heartless? If it doesn't, then you don't get it yet. Like, like Jesus is saying, abandon your father. Abandon your dead father. Abandon your family. Abandon your friends. Abandon everything that is closest to you. Abandon it. You know, this is, 
This is the same God who tells us to honor our father and mother. It's the same one who tells us to love our wives as ourselves. It's the same one who tells us to bring up our children in the, uh, in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. It's the same one who tells us to love our neighbor and to love our brothers. But you know what? You better love Jesus more. You better love Jesus above everything else. You better love Jesus so much that everything else looks like it is unimportant to you. You are, you are, you, everyone who lives in this world is going to follow after Jesus. You have to hold on to Jesus. You have to be more devoted to Jesus than anything else in the world. And what that means is, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, that means your, your parents are going to hate you. They're going to wonder why you don't come for Thanksgiving or you're not home for Christmas because you're out serving the Lord. You know what? They're not going to understand. It might, mean, it might even mean that, that your spouse, who is an unbeliever, hates you. It doesn't matter. You are devoted to Jesus Christ. Your children can reject you. Or your parents can reject you. Or your siblings can reject you. Or your co-workers, your employers, your house. You abandon it, everything. You, you so much love Jesus that everything else, it looks like you hate it. You are devoted to Jesus Christ. You abandon everything in this world. This world is not your home. And this, nothing in this world is your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. Amen. And he says, then another man says, I follow, uh, I'll follow you, Lord. Let me, go say, let me go say goodbye to my household. Let me go say goodbye to my mom. Jesus says, follow me. You can't put your hand to the plow and then turn back. The work is in front of you. The work is in front of you. Your, your goal is to keep Jesus in front of you. You follow Jesus. No matter what. All these other, and this is one of the things I think is, is really challenging for us. I think, I think it's meant to. We need to hear this. Jesus Christ is the one who invites the weary and heavy laden. That is true. And as paradoxical as it seems, though, he is telling people, follow me. Devote yourself to me. Do what I tell you to do. No questions asked. When Jesus tells you to do something, you don't ask questions. You do it. We need to be a little tougher. We need some tough-mindedness. We need some determination, some commitment to Jesus Christ. That looks like I will go wherever Jesus tells me to go. Some, 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 some toughness. I think this is missing. I think this is missing. We make excuses. And we throw pity parties. And we do whatever we can to squirm out from underneath the hard sayings of Jesus. You know which, the, the hard say, which ones are the hard sayings of Jesus? All of them. They're all hard. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. We serve a crucified Savior. So that's the kind of, of life that we're, we're living. It's the kind of life that we're pursuing when we follow Jesus Christ. So now we move into the, the central section here. And like I said, there are only two points. The first point's the longest. Move into chapter 10. And read verses 1 through 16 with me. It says, after this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it would be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, when you be exalted to heaven, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Uh, Jesus has already sent out one mission of the twelve, the twelve that he had chosen to be his apostles. And here he is sending out 72. This, this number 72 is, is symbolic for the 72 nations that are found in Genesis 10. This is, this is an indication by Luke that Jesus did not only come for the nation of Israel, but that from the beginning his intention was to send out uh, messengers to the nations, that the gospel would be proclaimed among the nations, that all the peoples of the earth would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's sending them out two by two. And here's what he says to him. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Now think about that. I want you to think about the analogy for a second. You know, there, at the beginning of the season, of the planting season, there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, there's uncertainty about seeds and soil and rain and sun and weeds and bugs and and all those things. I'm not very good at those kinds of things, but I understand that all those things can mess it up. All those things can mess up your crop. That's not what we're looking at. The harvest is already there. The harvest is plentiful. There are already people out there that God has prepared. They're already ready to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. They're already there. It's already going to happen. They're already there. They're already ready. All we need is some laborers. All we need is some people to go work it. And there aren't enough. There are not enough laborers in the harvest. There are not enough workers to bring the harvest in. There are not enough people to go out and to proclaim the gospel to the nations. There aren't enough to go and proclaim the gospel to the lost. There aren't enough of them. So what's the plan? Well, Jesus says we need to get together a training institute and... And we need to bring everybody together, and we're going to put them all in a classroom. We're going to we're going to teach them for a while, and we're going to train them up and prepare them, and we're going to get everything ready. And we're going to we're going to think of all these tactics. We're going to think of everything that we need to do. We need to kind of get together a corporation or institution of some sort to try and get the workers out there. It's not what he says. Doesn't mean that there's no place for preparation or for training or for teaching. What Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. You know who this harvest belongs to? 
You know who all those lost people who are going to respond to the gospel when they hear it? You know who they belong to? They belong to Jesus. They belong to God. And so you, you pray. And think about, think about how easy that sounds. Pray earnestly. Ask. Repeatedly. Hey, hey, you got, you got your walkie-talkie? You're like, you're down in the south field. You're like, hey, uh, hey, we need more workers here. We're not going to be able to get the harvest in in time because there are not enough workers. Send more workers. Put your walkie-talkie down. Go about your work. Ten minutes later, hey, I, I said we need more workers in the south field. We need more workers here. And how many prayer meetings have I been at where they asked for more workers? Is there any more direct or any more clear clear item for us to pray about than more workers? Jesus, I mean, Jesus tells us to pray for a lot of things. We're encouraged to pray about all of our anxieties, but is there anything more clear that we need to pray for than more workers for the harvest? Pray. Pray. And then he gives the instructions to the people who are going out. He wants to encourage them, so he says you're going out like lambs among wolves. That... That's a, that's a boost, right? Wolves eat lambs. That, that's, that's the kind of, that's, that's what you're going out into. This is, Jesus wants to pump them up. He wants to say, hey, you're going to be fine. It's going to be all sunny days and it's going to be easy. You know, to, to follow Jesus Christ is to be opposed. It's to be rejected. It is to, it is to be surrounded by, by beings that would want nothing more than to eat you. They want to devour you. That's what you're going out in. That's what Jesus is calling people to follow him, to go out and to be, to be lambs among wolves. And he says, travel light, go your way. Uh, carry, you don't carry any money bag, no, no knapsack, no sandals, no extra pair of sandals. Don't greet anybody on the road. Evidently, you know, some of these greetings could last a while. No, don't, don't greet anybody. You've got to get there. Later on, uh, in chapter 22, people are going to be able to bring extra things, uh, presumably because they're going on a longer journey. You're going to the ends of the earth. Okay, now you can take a, now you can take a backpack. Okay, but here, don't take anything. Trust God to provide for you. Trust God to provide for you. You don't need to carry anything with you. Don't carry any extras. Just go. Go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. And then you're going to go, and you go and find some place. You go and find a son of peace. That I think this is a person. You go and declare the gospel to you. You go, and, you go like your first day in the town. You're preaching the gospel. Somebody comes to Christ, or somebody's just friendly to you. It's a son of peace. Brings you into the house. Says, stay there. Stay there. Eat what they put in front of you. If they give you a room to stay in, stay in that room. Because he says, in verse 7, he says, he says, a worker deserves his wages. He says, Pronounce a blessing on this house. Peace be to this house. And then if they don't accept you, the peace returns to you. It's a qualified blessing. Qualified benediction. And he says, eat eat what is in front of you. You deserve your wages. That's important. Gospel proclamation is work. A gospel proclaimer is a worker. 
deserves his wages, deserves to be provided for. And that's something that's picked up all through the, all through the New Testament. So in Luke 8, Jesus was provided for. People gave to him so that he could proclaim the gospel. Or in 3 John, there are people who go from house to house proclaiming the gospel. Or in Galatians 6, 6, those who are taught should share all good things with those who teach. Uh, or in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, uh, Paul says, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So it's one thing to be supplied. But then Jesus also says, don't go from house to house. What he's talking about there is there are some teachers... For other philosophies, other forms of teaching, they would go into a town and they would find a place to live. And let's say they can only get, you know, they can only get into like a lower middle class house when they first go in. And then they get a little bit of a following and they start to move up houses. You move, you move from rice and beans at the, at the poor person's house to uh, gradually you just kind of work your way up to, you know, the filet and, uh, and cheesecake house over here. Just kind of work your way up. He says, don't do that. Go, stay in the house that you find to stay. You stay there. Be content with your wages. Be content with what you've been given. And I think that is the balance to gospel proclamation and the support of it. Some, some guys are going to go into a town. They're going to go to a poor house, and that's where they're going to stay. And other people, they're going to go to a rich house, and that's where they're going to stay. And each one of them just says, hey, this is what God, I'm here to proclaim the gospel. That's all it is. Do not go from house to house. Eat what they've given you. You can see here that there is this partnership in gospel proclamation. There is going and sending. There is, there is proclaiming and providing. We need to, we need to, uh, there, there is this balance. There is this, there is this partnership. Third John is really informative. He says, we, we are fellow workers when you provide for these gospel proclaimers. You're fellow workers with them. When you provide for them, you are providing for the proclamation of the gospel. This is a whole church effort to, to proclaim the gospel. So we need to pray for God to raise up workers to go into the harvest. And then we're all going to be partners together to getting the proclamation out. We are all we are all proclaiming the gospel. None of us is excused from that. But we can see here that there are those who are this, this person who is showing hospitality, this person who is serving, and this person who is speaking. And there is this partnership. And that's our mission, to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel to the nations. Proclaim the gospel everywhere. There are, there are a lot of things on my mind, and I think, I think things that we ought to be thinking about, about getting... The gospel out there, getting it to getting it to new places, to new languages, to places that it's not, to be continually thinking about that. And we do not have the resources at present to do that. We don't have the workers. We don't have, the, we don't have enough workers. We do not have enough workers. We can send out more workers. So we pray for more workers, and then we're going to partner with them to proclaim the gospel. Then he says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go into every town. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to say the kingdom of God is near. Uh, Jesus' healing and the apostles' healing and these men who are being sent out by Jesus to heal, this is a picture of what the kingdom is. This is a, this is a concrete evidence. What did, what did Jesus say when John's disciples came to him and said, hey, is the kingdom of God here uh, or should we expect somebody else? And Jesus says, 
You tell them what you saw here. The, the blind see, the lame walk. The demon-possessed are, are purified. You tell them what you see, and you'll know that the kingdom is here. You know, in the, in the kingdom of God in its fullness, there is this already not yet tension. The, the kingdom of God is already there. The fullness of the kingdom is not yet here. In the fullness of the kingdom, when Jesus Christ returns, there will be no sickness. But the concrete picture that the kingdom is already upon them is there is healing. When Jesus Christ comes, that is the beginning of the kingdom. The king is here. His reign is beginning. And there's healing. He says the kingdom of God is near you. And when the kingdom of God is here, kingdom of God, what they're expecting in the Old Testament is they're expecting the kingdom of God to come. And when the kingdom of God comes, that is the expectation that all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, all those who have looked for, for the coming of the Messiah, they're going to be saved, they're going to be rescued. And all of those who have rejected the Messiah, all those who have rebelled against the Lord, are going to be judged. And so you can see that there. You can see the consequences of rejecting this gospel. He says in verses 10 through 12, he says, when you're in town, they don't receive you. What I want you to do is I want you to make sure you don't get any of the dust on that town on your feet. You don't want to be, you don't want to be contaminated because there are going to be fireballs at, at some point. And you don't want any of the dust of that town even on your feet. Because you proclaim to them also that the kingdom of God is near. And you know what? For those of you, those who, who rejected the gospel, it will, be, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for those who reject the gospel. And you see there in verses uh, 13 through 15, you see there Chorus and Bethsaida. This is one of the places, some of the places where Jesus did a lot of his, his preaching, a lot of his miracles. Jesus said it's going to be easier for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon are these proverbially wicked places who had always, always committed themselves to wickedness and had uh, treated God's people ill. It's going to be easier for them than for you on Judgment Day. He says Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' kind of home base during his Galilean ministry. Most of the time when he's, are you going to be lifted up? No, you're going to be brought down to Hades. You're going to be brought down to the, to the grave, to the place of punishment for the dead. Think about that for a second. Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah were not innocent. They were judged. They were judged because they rejected the knowledge of their creator. But then the creator took on human flesh and became incarnate and walked among us. When you reject him, it is going to be, it, it is a, a whole different level to reject Jesus. It's a whole different level. The gospel has been proclaimed to you. You are now responsible to respond to it, to believe it, to follow after Jesus. Look at verse 16. I'm going to read it again. It says, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Think about the close bond that is there. You know, the, the father and the son have this bond, this union. And John Jesus talks about the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they have this union, this bond that cannot be broken. So that to reject Jesus is to reject 
God. Like if you insult my wife, you insult me. We have this union. We have this bond. You cannot do anything to him without doing it to God. You can't do anything to Jesus without doing it to God. And that very same bond is the bond that Jesus Christ has with his people. By analogy, that bond, that closeness, when they reject you, don't take it personally. Because they are rejecting me. They are rejecting me. When they hear you and believe, they're hearing me. So don't take credit for it. But when they reject you, they are rejecting me. Jesus is in us. We are in Jesus. And Jesus, the Son, is in the Father. And the Father is in the Son. And your mind just blew up. That's fine. But get this. Get this. What that means is, Jesus is with us. Jesus identifies with us. That ought to encourage all of us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it. They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. We know that we might be rejected. But they're rejecting Jesus, not us. It also ought to be a warning to those who reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Cannot reject Jesus and have God. A lot of people think they can. Jesus says you can't. So that was by far the longest point. We've seen Jesus, the rejection of Jesus. Now we see the rejoicing of Jesus. Read verses 17 through 24. says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in them that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We'll just stop there for just a second. Look there. 72 come back and they're like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. You would not believe what we've seen. They, the, the demons, these, these spiritual powers, they, they, they obeyed us in your name. And Jesus says, this is the picture again of the kingdom coming. Satan, who is called the God of this age, the ruler of this world. Jesus is the strong man who comes, and he is the one who comes in and he binds the strong man. He binds Satan. This is the picture that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is upon you. Satan is being bound. Satan is falling. Satan is being cast down. He's sitting there up there thinking he is on the throne, thinking he is going to rule over this age, thinking that he has control. And Jesus Christ takes him and by his power, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and throws him to the ground, binds him. He is the Holy One who comes and casts out demons by the power of God. And then he says, I'm going to give you power over serpents and scorpions. Satan is pictured as the serpent. Scorpions are these, these d- demonic figures. But he says, Jesus says to them, the evil one has no power over you. They will not harm you. Every time when we pray the disciples' prayer, when we pray the Lord's prayer, keep us from the evil one. Jesus does that. Jesus is not allowing Satan or his demons to allow, to, to harm his people. But he says, all this power, All this power that you've seen, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
In the midst of rejection, you rejoice. What kind of rejoicing do we need? We need rejoicing that says, my name is written in the book, written in heaven. You know, there are people who are proclaiming the gospel because they think that it is a means of gain. They're, they will proclaim the gospel because they enjoy the power that they seem to have over people. But the only kind of people who will continue to proclaim the gospel in the face of rejection are those who say, my name is written in, in heaven. I don't care what happens. I don't care what happens. My name is written in heaven. And that is what is most important. Remember that. That is what is most important. That is your, that is your solid foundation to keep going. To keep being determined. You see there another encouragement, verses 21 and 22, it says in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Again, you see this, this connection in Luke between the anointing of the Spirit on Jesus and him speaking. <clears throat> I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying some things have been hidden. It's been hidden from the prideful. It's been hidden from the wise. It's been hidden from the people who are high. It's been hidden from the first. And it's been revealed to little children. Because you know what? You know what? In God's plan, you know who doesn't, you know, you know who doesn't get salvation in the end. Everybody who thinks of themselves as as righteous, or thinks of themselves as wise, or thinks of themselves as knowledgeable. Jesus cuts them down. In the kingdom of God, there is no boasting. No one boasts. I just figured out the gospel myself, and this person didn't. I must be wise in understanding. You no, know, Jesus is saying, no, it, it has been hidden from a certain group for a very particular purpose and revealed to another group, a weaker group, for a very particular purpose so that there will be no boasting, so that God gets maximum glory for his gracious purpose. Then he says, all things have been handed over to me. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and whomever the Son wants to reveal him. Another kind of the Father's in the Son, the Son's in the Father, and somehow we're picked up in that. But, but even a little bit of a distinct picture here. We get to know God because the Son reveals him to us. We get to know the Father because the Son revealed him to us. Only the Son knows the Father. Only the Son of God knows the Father. Only He can reveal Him to us. And we know that. We, we get to know that. We get that. If, if that's revealed to you, it's because Jesus revealed that to you. You give glory to Jesus Christ for that, for knowing God. And then the last couple of verses here says, Then turning to His disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see. And did not see, and hear what you hear, and did not hear them. You know, lots of times when we hear stories from the Old Testament about Moses and the things that he was able to experience, and Joshua, and David, and Isaiah, we think, man, if only we had seen all those miracles, if only we had gotten to see those things. 
You know what they wanted to see? They wanted to see what we've seen. Since sin first entered this world, there has been no better time to know God than now. The kingdom has, is already in the midst of us. It's already here. Already, Jesus Christ is ruling. And those of us who have a taste of Jesus Christ now, all we want is more. They want to see it. We want more of it. We've got it. We are blessed. We're rejoicing that. This is all of this rejoicing. And the reason why I felt like, man, these have to go together. We have to get this rejection and rejoicing together. Because living in this world as a Christian, we are guaranteed by Jesus himself that there will be tribulation. It will vary. There will be different measures of it. There will be different degrees of it. But all of us, if we are following Jesus Christ, there are going to be hard times. But our names are written in heaven. And God himself has been revealed to us by the Son. And we get to see what all those saints who were before us wanted to see. We see it it by seeing it and hearing it in the gospel. That Jesus Christ came and he died for our sins and he rules over us. Let's rejoice in that. And let's rejoice. Let's, Let's take our rejoicing and let's see our joy in Jesus take Take this, take this form of a determined, fixed, unflinching pursuit of Jesus Christ. He's got it.